Hello, and welcome to Hodelpack's Crypto in Congress podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Wordy. This week's guest is a special one, Kristen Smith, Executive Director of the Blockchain Association, who, like Jake Trubinsky last week, is also a founding board member of Hodelpack. Kristen has a very special perspective on the dialogue between crypto and Congress. She spent most of her career in D.C. politics as a staffer in the Senate and the House and as a lobbyist on various issues. And now at the Blockchain Association, she and her team are very active on Capitol Hill, where they meet with members and their staff about all things crypto. In addition to that role, however, the Blockchain Association also helps organize the industry's other policy-related efforts of all kinds. So without further ado, Kristen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Tyler. So to start things off with our customary intro question for non-congressional guests, how did you end up getting involved in crypto? And, and specifically for you, you know, how did you end up with the Blockchain Association? Yeah, so I, I came to crypto a, a couple years ago. I guess it was really three years ago when I, I started learning about the space. And I am a longtime Washington, D.C. person. I worked on Capitol Hill for 10 years and then worked as a lobbyist um, at a couple multi-client lobbying firms. And um, so I've always been in kind of the advocacy and influence business, uh, whether it be on the receiving end or the um, actually advocating end. And I was at a firm and I had one client, actually Overstock, who uh, was interested through one of their subsidiaries, Medici Ventures, about blockchain and crypto. And I I really got into it. I mean, I think like, like all of us in the industry, you know, kind of go down the rabbit hole. And um, I, I realized at the time that there was some activity um, going on, but that we needed to build out more infrastructure in Washington in order to educate and, and, and influence policymaking decisions. You know, like Coin Center had been around, they do a great job, but but you need more than one group because other industries have, have a very large presence. And so I found some, I was sort of set up with a, a few folks at different companies that were looking to bring a trade association together and they needed someone who was willing to quit their job to uh, do this full time. And I was more than happy uh, to take up the challenge. So you mentioned the Blockchain Association as a trade association. What are those? Like what, what exactly do they do? Yeah. So the Blockchain Association, we are a trade association. It is, it's a nonprofit that is funded by member organizations. And we our, our mission at the Blockchain Association is to improve public policy for the crypto industry. And our members are a, a mix of folks in the crypto industry, ranging from exchanges to early stage investors to organizations building out their own chains to, you know, others that are building applications on top of those chains. And so it's a, it's a good mix. Um, everyone believes in the power of decentralization and are working exclusively on those issues. And it, it's a really great group of members. And, and because we're fairly focused in, in what we represent, we're able to get pretty detailed in the recommendations that we do. What form do those recommendations take? How, how do trade associations play a role in the policymaking process? Yeah, so I mean, and, and at the highest level, there are trade associations that, that have sort of different areas of focus, but our area of focus is, is policy change, like I mentioned. And so it's, it's sort of a multi-step process. I, you know, one of our jobs is to keep our, our industry members educated about the developments that are happy, happening in Washington, D.C. We, we have a lot of information here. We have a very vast uh, sort of network of people that we deal with, and, and we know when things are going to happen, and we share that information with our members. 
But, but perhaps one of the most important roles, I think, of our trade association is we facilitate dialogues between different industry member companies so that we can come up with unified policy positions. And I'll get into what in a minute what I mean about by policy decision or positions. But, um, you know, for example, I know uh, Jake Shavinsky was on your show last week. He co-chairs our DeFi working group where we convene people within our member organizations who are interested in DeFi. We talk about the policy issues related to that. So um, the, the policy positions can come in many forms. You know, in, in the early stages of a policy issue, a lot of it is just sort of education about what is the issue or what is sort of the underlying aspect of the industry behind that issue. Um, but then as we sort of go forward, oftentimes we'll propose things in early stages just as sort of a blog post um, or, or a white paper. But um, uh, other kind of more formal positions are, um, you know, like we'll write a letter to the Financial Stability Board about how we think global stablecoin arrangements should be made, or we'll write a letter to the OCC responding to um, a request for comment on the intersection of crypto and banking, um, or we'll even get more specific, um, sort of like we did with the Token Taxonomy Act uh, several years ago, is we we put pen to paper and, and propose legislative language that we then share with members of Congress for their consideration. Um, sometimes it's it's on the defensive side where we see a, a bill that's been introduced that we don't like and we try to offer changes to that. So so that is all discussion. Um, you know, th those positions don't just create themselves. They're, they're the product of a lot of input from a lot of different experts within the industry. Um, and then sort of the third thing we do after we have a position on any given particular issue is we we go advocate for that issue. We, we have a great network with the, the relevant regulators and, and lawmakers here in Washington, D.C., and we go and work with them in order to try to get the bills that we want introduced um, in order to, to get them from the introduction phase to the committee phase or, you know, through the floor. And, um, you know, it's really... A, working directly with government and explaining to them why, why we think they should take up our cause. There's another part of the advocacy scene, which is uh, fundraising and political action committees, as well as grassroots advocacy. And of course, along with being the head of the Blockchain Association, you are separately a co-founder and a board member of Hodel PAC. So uh, can you talk a little bit about PACs and like what they do and why they're important? So political action committees are, are entities that are registered with the SEC that raise money from individuals in order to then donate those funds to different political campaigns. Um, at least that's sort of how I, I think of a PAC. They are hugely important to the process here in DC. Um, and I know that there are a lot of people out there that think that money in politics is bad. Um, the reality is it is a tool that everyone uses in order to get in front of the policymakers that you know we need relationships with. Um, but, but maybe I'll back up for a second and talk about my experience when I was a staffer on Capitol Hill and how over time I became I, I came to learn the importance of, uh, of working on legislation that would help my boss raise money. So, you know, when you're, I worked for two senators and, and one congressman, 
And the congressmen in particular, you know, they're they're up for election every two years. The Senate, it's every six years. So there's a little bit less pressure there. But, you know, for those guys to show up at their job every day, they have to be elected. And to get elected, you generally have to raise several million dollars every couple of years in order to run your campaign. You need to buy TV ads, you need to pay for campaign staff, you need to print yard signs, you know, there's all these costs associated with that. The biggest cost tends to be the, the airtime for TV ads. And if you are a senator and you're running statewide, it gets even more expensive to do that. Their campaigns can be uh, every six years um, in the tens of millions of dollars uh, in that range. And so if one likes going to the Capitol building every day and, and you know, a member of Congress likes going to the floor to vote and they want to stay and continue doing that, they also, as a side job, essentially need to be raising money. Um, and this is all a highly sort of there's a lot of rules around how all of this works and the Federal Election Commission um, requires disclosures. And so there is a tremendous amount of transparency and there, there are limits in terms of the, the dollar amounts given. But when, for example, when, when I was working for a member of the House who's running for the Senate, over a two-year period, he had to raise $10 million and he had to travel to 38 different states to attend these like in-person fundraisers uh, in order to do it. I mean, it, it was, took a tremendous amount of his time. And the, the, the funny thing is the, the elected officials that are running for re-election or, you know, those candidates who are not elected but are trying to get elected, they don't actually like this process either, but they don't have a choice because they, they need the funds in order to have their job. So, you know, for me as a congressional staffer, you were always very aware um, you know, it was never in any sort of official way, but you're always very aware of who are the big donors, who are the industry organizations or the advocacy organizations that have supported, you know, the boss, meaning the congressman or the congresswoman in that campaign. And, and there's, there's a definite awareness. And, you know, as a, as a staffer, I was always trying to figure out what is an agenda that I can have my boss push forward that will help him do what he needs to do for his constituents, but also help him get elected, right? And so, you know, there's sort of two things you, you look at. To get elected, you need votes. And so when you're hearing from constituents, whether that be, you know, back in the district at a town hall meeting or constituents calling in into the office with asking people to vote a certain way or sending emails in or tweeting at a congressman, you, you kind of get a sense that, okay, these are my constituents and they care about these issues and I will take policy positions that support what they care about. And, and so that's a very, the grassroots element is a very, very important thing, but it's also, you're trying to figure out, well, what can I do as a staffer to ensure that, that the boss is getting, campaign contributions and that, that, you know, if I'm personally as a staffer, I'm passionate about crypto policy. I want to make sure that the boss is going to be taken care of in some time, in some way, because he only has, you know, a congressman or woman only has so many hours in a day and they can't take on these projects unless there isn't a benefit to their constituents or to getting reelected. And so for me, I think it's important for the crypto community to play in this space, um, to participate both on a grassroots side and a political giving side, because it will give us 
the tools we need to actually grow and cultivate more champions for our policies. I obviously agree with you there, and I'm excited to experiment with you know using emerging technology and innovations from the crypto industry to build Hodel Pack as a community governed organization. You know, related to this, one of the things I also wanted to ask you about was what you think of that opportunity to kind of introduce a new style of advocacy to DC, the form that Hodel Pack is promoting. I think there are a lot of exciting opportunities that Hodel Pack brings, and 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 really, it's the first time I've seen of this sort of kind of community-governed approach to, to PACs. Um, you know, typically the way a PAC works today, um, you know, and, and you can see there, there's new registrations that come with PACs every day. Some of them are potentially going to be reputable. Others are, uh, you know, just sort of an effort of somebody to, to try to get funds into a particular political cause that, um, you know, might not have the best of intentions. But what I like about Hodel Pack is that, the decisions about which candidates get funded are made by the, the community themselves. So it, it's not going to be a situation where, you know, there's a committee or there's one person that's picking, you know, 10 candidates and they're going to take all of the funds that they get and give them to those 10 candidates. Like this is a situation where, where the community can decide, hey, I like what a certain congressman's doing and I'm going to put them on the ballot and we're going to direct funds to them. So I think that that is... Um, that's that's really powerful because it takes away the need for sort of this centralized decision making. I mean, just like we see with all crypto networks. And I think that that will make it more efficient. I think it will make the money be allocated in a way that that reflects um, the, the contributors to the fund. Um, but I also think on the grassroots side, I think it will allow us to mobilize supporters of good crypto policy and, and the people of the crypto community in a way that is organic and genuine. Um, a lot of times today with different grassroots programs, um, you know, we call them AstroTurf here in DC. You'll, you'll, you'll hire a group and they'll, you know, gin up a bunch of, you know, form emails or something of that nature. I, I think in the crypto world that everyone is so connected and shares so much information that we can we can activate input into Congress without having to have an expensive sort of formal top-down structure. I think it can be really a true true grassroots effort um, that that is is backed by real people who are really passionate about getting good crypto policy. I wanted to ask a bit about, you know, the latest on crypto policy in DC. Like I said, you have a very unique position to view all of this since you regularly talk to both uh, policymakers and the industry. Since the Blockchain Association got started, you know, what are some of the big ticket items that you've been paying attention to and maybe how have they changed over time? Yeah, no, there's definitely been a little bit of a shift and sort of expansion, I think, of the number of, of issues uh, relating to crypto policy in DC. When we started the Blockchain Association two years ago, issues around getting clarity in securities laws and when they apply, that, that was probably the top on most people's minds because we've been coming off the ICO craze. There have been a bunch of enforcement actions and projects wanted some certainty to know. That has, I think actually it was a little bit less hot of an issue than it was a couple of years ago because... The SEC did provide some additional guidance. Um, there, 
I think different projects and companies have come up with different ways to evaluate token offerings and to, to determine, you know, when they're security and when they're not. And so, so the industry sort of put some best practices in place, and I don't think it's quite as much of an issue, though there are some things happening in the courts that we're watching very closely, but it's very hard to influence um, a court decision. Um, it's much easier to influence at the legislative branch or, or with with regulators. But when Libra came around last year, that sparked an, a discussion on uh, stable coins, uh, the digital dollar, uh, you know, what, what can we do to upgrade our money? And, and that's a conversation that's continuing to be had here in DC, especially in light of COVID-19 and uh, concerns about distributing uh, stimulus checks or fears about using actual paper cash. And so there's a lot of discussion going on, but there isn't a whole lot of clarity in what direction policymakers need to go or if they even need to do anything at all. Um, there, there have been some calls for establishing accounts at the Fed to hold digital dollars, or there have been calls for the Fed to issue a tokenized dollar and that they should do some pilot projects around that. Um, but there's also a ton of activity with stablecoins just going on in the private sector right now that can happen um, and, and thrive without having a whole lot of government intervention. But, but it's definitely a topic that's top of mind with policymakers and lawmakers, and it's provided a great opportunity to come in and sit down and have a conversation with them and talk about um, what crypto is and how it can help improve money and payments. We've also seen... Um, you know, most recently at the OCC, which is the Office of the Controller of the Currency, uh, you know, we have uh, Acting Controller Brian Brooks is over there. He, he, you know, came from Coinbase. He has a lot of knowledge and understanding and um, has, uh, he issued a letter a, a few weeks back that clarified that banks do have the ability to custody crypto. And so little things like that that are interpretive letters can actually go along way towards sending good signals to institutional um, players and also individuals. And so so some of those, I think we're going to continue to hopefully see, see some more out of the OCC, you know, in the months ahead. But we've also seen a lot of work going on at the IRS with tax policy. You know, the IRS is looking to come up with some, some reporting requirements for exchanges that will make it, you know, easier for individuals to know how much uh, their tax liability is at the end of the year, or there is an issue around how to tax staking rewards. And um, you know, at the Blockchain Association, we worked with our, our friends at the Proof of Stake Alliance, um, as well as Coin Center, in order to to get a letter coming from some congressmen this week. Um, I should say, you know, Congress obviously passes legislation, but they also have an oversight role when it comes to federal agencies. And so you don't always need to have Congress introduce and consider and pass a bill in order to impact policy. Individual small groups or individual members of Congress often write letters to agencies where there's already the authority in place. You know, they could make a decision. That's like what we're seeing with, um, with the proof of stake issue is that, you know, we've got Congress is sort of pushing the IRS to, to make a decision and make a move. And, and that's an important role for Congress. And it's, it's a, um, you know, all the more reason why it's important to have good, strong relationships and, and an educated group of champions on Capitol Hill, because it's not just legislation, but it's also putting pressure 
on these congressional agencies to to take the right actions. But yeah, so there, as there's there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, you know, there's a lot of changes ahead, most likely. Um, I think the conventional wisdom is that the election uh, will lead to some changes, um, not only in the House and Senate, but possibly at the White House. And even if the winds sort of change and there isn't a shift at the White House, there will probably be uh, changes within the agent, federal agencies. And so it's important that we stay focused and continue to build relationships. And when somebody new comes in, get in there quickly and work with them uh, to get them up to speed because there are many different parts of government right now that are that are looking at crypto, trying to understand crypto. And, um, you know, I, I think we're in a good position to, to hopefully have some, some additional good policies uh, come out of government in the months and years ahead. You mentioned the OCC's recent actions. You also mentioned the letter from Congress to the IRS about proof of stake taxes. You know, these things are a bit different than maybe the schoolhouse rock, you know, I'm a bill on Capitol Hill version of policymaking. It's not necessarily behind the scenes because all these things are done in public, but I would say it's definitely more in the weeds and less in line with uh, maybe a lay person's understanding of government. Yet at the at the same time, all of these things do come back to elections since democratically elected representatives appoint and approve of regulators and uh, oversee these different agencies. So can you talk a bit about like how these kinds of things come together and in, in why? And, and by these kinds of things, I mean actions by a regulator absent of, of Congress's involvement or Congress overseeing agencies without direct legislation? Yeah, so it, it's a mix of things. Um, you know, typically something doesn't happen unless someone asks for it to happen. That's not always the case. Sometimes it's that there are just so many people that are maybe using a specific product or service that that regulators have an obligation to look at it. But, you know, it tends to be that, especially with something like crypto, the solutions are so specific that unless unless somebody offers it, you're not going to get offers up some ideas uh, to get the discussion going. Well, let's take the OCC as an example there. I mean, that is a situation where you have a regulator who has long been passionate about fintech issues and understands that um, if we improve our banking system, that we can solve, you know, if we allow more technology into the banking system, we can solve some of its underlying problems and flaws. And so the OCC situation is a situation where you, you have a, a controller that has a, an agenda and, and he's moving down. That's a little bit of an outlier. Um, typically, things only happen when there are forces pushing for an action. And so in the case of the, the proof of stake taxing, that wasn't like the IRS was sitting around and being like, what are we going to do with these like staking rewards? That was a group of companies, um, some of whom are blockchain association members, but who also work with one of with the proof of stake alliance. That was them figuring out how, sh what is a, a way that these can be done? How, how can we look at this? And they authored a white paper and they went around and talked to the IRS and then they went around and talked to the Hill and they got, they, they convinced enough lawmakers that, that they supported this idea. So that, that was a case where that was driven by groups that wanted to see change and there wasn't anybody opposing that and they, they've been able to make progress. I mean, it's still not done yet, but I think it's on a good path. And you don't need legislation when there is existing authority in, that an agency has. And so in both the case of the OCC and the IRS, 
Congress doesn't have to pass a bill because they have the authority to make these decisions independent of any new legislation. And so that's when these kind of maybe lesser known tactics of, you know, getting congressional support or putting pressure on an agency to take an action. It's actually very common. Um, there are lobbyists and trade organizations and individual companies and um, other types of advocates here in DC that use these levers every day. It, it's only when you have to do something that's fundamentally new or that gives a, a different direction or, or a different authority to an agency, it's only then that you actually need legislation to get done, um, which is a very long process. And so so sometimes it's easier if you can find a way without needing a new bill, then, then that's a faster way to, to getting the outcome you need. So something we've discussed with most of our other guests on this show is the quote unquote digital dollar. Can you talk a bit about how you see this ongoing conversation from your perspective, and then maybe how the crypto world can influence or help that process along? Yeah, I think our role, and, and you know, I, I sort of differ, and I think the, the consensus of the Blockchain Association members differs a little bit than, you know, what the Digital Dollar Project or some of these other efforts are out there. It's, it's our opinion that the dollar is the dollar, but we can take a crypto wrapper and put it around the dollar and we can move it around a lot faster. We can dice it up smaller. We can lower fees. Um, we can have access to it 24 hours a day. We can improve the dollar by bringing it into the crypto world. There are different models for doing that, right? Um, I mean, there are some like USDC that actually are, you know, backed by dollars sitting in a bank account. But there's there are other really cool projects out there, you know, like Dai or Cello Dollars and some of these others that are protocol based that are sort of, you know, meant to, to track a dollar. And I think what, what your sort of average policymaker who hasn't looked at this perceives is, oh, China is creating a, a crypto uh, or, you know, a blockchain back, backed currency. And therefore, we need to do that with the dollar here in the U.S., I actually think the answer is here in the U.S., we don't do industrial policy, or at least that's that hasn't been what's made this country great. What's made this country great is private individuals have, have gone out and created technological solutions in order to meet the demands of consumers and businesses. And that's what we see happening, that we have a lot of stablecoin projects that are out there that are all a little bit different, that all have different features, but they don't need to be created because the Fed issued a dollar. Um, this is all, these are all projects that, that can create value in, in different ways. And so I, I think that I'm more interested in letting these innovators and these entrepreneurs pursue these ideas. And if we need to put some, some parameters around that to make sure that, that they're properly regulated, we can do that. But I don't know if that needs to come from the government itself. As we build Hodelpack and, and grow into a position where, you know, we can be supporting candidates for Congress, you know, how should the community think about who to support? Yeah, so I think there are really sort of two types of, of members of Congress or congressional candidates. It's those that have shown interest in in the crypto community. That's sort of the first type. These are these are people that might not know every single facet or detail, but they're interested in it and they want to learn and they're willing to step up and put their name on legislation or put their name on letters and and help try to create a better 
policy environment for the crypto community. Like, I think we want to take take care of our champions and take care of our friends. The other type of lawmaker or or candidate that I think Total Pack should consider, I mean, again, it's community governed, so it's not up to me, but are those that are in sort of key positions that might not be fans of this space yet, but if they saw that this was an active and vibrant community, they would maybe start to learn about crypto and ultimately become our champions. These are the types of people that chair key committees or subcommittees in the House and Senate, or that maybe represent districts that have a, a you know sort of a high concentration of, of crypto projects or, or people who are into crypto. And I think so I think it's a combination of you know supporting our champions but also laying the groundwork to create new ones. As I said earlier, I think you have a very interesting perspective on the conversation between the crypto community and, and, and regulators and policymakers. Do you have any parting words for either or both communities? For those in the crypto community, it's a really especially unique time. I think that government and congressmen and their staffs are learning to be remote for the first time. And I think it's going to be that way for a while longer. And I think this provides an opportunity for the crypto community because you don't have to, you know, go dust off your suit and hop on a plane and come to Washington to sit down and have a meeting with your congressman or your staffer. You can actually do this by calling up the office and setting up a phone call and and getting on a video call and that, that wasn't part of the culture before, but it's it's now being part of the, the culture of advocacy now. And so I think this is a huge opportunity for individuals who are just super passionate about this to, to get involved and to reach out. And, and you can do that by, you know, going on to house.gov or senate.gov and calling the number and then they'll, you know, send you to your congressman. And, you know, I think it's important for them to hear from their constituents and their voters that this is something that people care about. Um, I think we're at what, 40 million people in the US own some crypto. I mean, that's, that's great. And I think that number is gonna continue to grow. And when congressmen see that their constituents are using crypto and like crypto, that they will, they will take the time um, in order to get the policies right. Awesome, Kristen, thanks for your time. This was fun. Yeah, thanks, Tyler. And look forward to uh, your next episode. We've really been enjoying this series. Thank you for listening to Crypto in Congress presented by Hodelpack. If you'd like to learn more about Hodelpack and our mission, check us out at www.hodelpack.org or follow us on Twitter at Hodelpack. Also, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to get exclusive updates and access to transcripts from each episode. We'll see you next week.